Welcome to episode 146, a clinician's role in immigration evaluations, explaining the process and why the work deeply matters, featuring Georgia King, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am joined by Georgia King. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she is at the front edge of this work in the field that we don't talk about enough, which is immigration evaluations and how therapists can be involved in this process. Um, Georgia, thank you for joining us today to talk about this. Beth, thank you so much. It's so good to be here. Before we launch into what is an immigration evaluation, how does one get into it, please tell us more about your background and then how this came to be your specialization, knowing that now you train on this nationally. Sure. Um, so I'm a clinical social worker and therapist in Los Angeles. Um, I've been in private practice for a number of years. Um, I was meeting with uh, clients. I uh, specialized in teenagers for a long time. I really like how they're so grumpy. And then hopefully they get less grumpy at some point, And that's always thrilling. Um, and then one day um, I moved into a new office for my private practice. And it happened to be across the hall from these immigration lawyers. And one day, one of these lawyers asked me for what he called a psychological evaluation for one of his cases. I had never heard of such a thing. I refused. I was not interested. I didn't know what that was. Um, but I was right across the hall. I, over time, kept talking with these lawyers. They were lovely. Um, I started doing some research and found out that master's level therapists can do these assessments. Um, I jumped in and started working on cases with them. And once we heard back that the cases were winning, I was just hooked. So I'll talk to you more about what that even means. But I fell into the work totally by accident. And then over time, it became um, just more and more the focus of my practice. I have so many questions just because it's, it is so different at least for me, when I was in my master's program, this never came up. And the only conversation yeah. that ever came up about any kind of evaluation or testing usually pertain to scope of practice, scope of competence. And so often mm -hmm. for MFTs at a master's level, if we're, if we're not doctoral level, there's stuff, depending on what state you are in, but some stuff that might be kind of off limits for us. So mm -hmm. in what you just said, I want to reinforce George is saying that as master's levels clinicians, this is something that we can do. Um, so why don't we start just in a definition, what is an immigration assessment? What does that really mean? Sure. So we are simply talking about a mental health assessment provided for an immigration legal case. Super simple. Now, when I first heard a, um, a lawyer talk about this, they called it a psychological evaluation. And that threw me off right away. Because I hear that as a clinician, and I'm thinking psych testing, Right. I'm thinking that you would need some kind of extensive training, um, and that is not at all the case. That is not at all the case. Master's level therapists can absolutely do these assessments. It's a simple mental health assessment. So basically, as therapists, you know, we have the skill set, and all you need is training to adapt the skills to the unique needs of immigration cases. That's all somebody needs. So for those of us who are not as familiar even necessarily with the immigration process, will you set the frame and explain what it is, how it works, how long it takes, the cost factors, like just, I guess, the bare bones, 
immigration 101 of how things work in the United States and what the process is for someone who's immigrating? Sure. So there are three main kinds of cases that I tend to work on. Um, and I can give you a little snapshot of each of those, of kind of what these three cases are. Um, I'll start with asylum cases. I work on a lot of asylum cases, and this is sort of an easy way to describe what our assessments can do and how they can provide mm -hmm. evidence for someone's case. So we have, you know, for an asylum case, someone's been through persecution in their home country. They're fleeing some kind of persecution, but it's rare that they have physical scars. So they often don't really have any kind of evidence for their case. But as therapists, we can document the invisible scars of PTSD, depression, mm. anxiety, et cetera. This provides evidence for their case. I've worked on so many cases where the lawyer tells me, you know, we had to base the case on your assessment because that was the only evidence this person had. They didn't have any documents, um, photographs. They didn't have um, a police report or anything like that. So we're able to help an immigrant tell their story and we're able to provide evidence for their case. We document the invisible scars of what they've been through. And so when we're looking at the kind of context around immigration, so how, I mean, how does it even work where someone in another country says, I want to go to the United States? What balls get tossed up in the air? What's the series of events that happen to get to you or someone like you that does the kind of work that you do? Sure. So, of course, there's there's going to be as many different stories as there are individuals. Yeah. Um, the way that I typically get involved, um, I have a lot of different immigration lawyers that I've worked with over the years. And what will happen is they'll tell a client, call Georgia King, you need to get um, a psychological evaluation for your case. So I'll work with folks from all over the world, you know, certainly a lot from Central America, South America, Mexico, but also a lot from Iran, different countries in Africa, um, Thailand, China, India. So I work with folks from all over. Um, a lot of times someone is fleeing um, life-threatening persecution. They're often having to flee like very suddenly. But then I also work with other folks who maybe um, maybe came here on a student visa. Um, I had one recently who um, came here on a student visa from Sierra Leone, realized over the course of college that he was gay, realized he could not go back to his home country without being in life-threatening danger. Um, and then I was able to be part of his process to help document his sexual orientation, the danger that he'd be in if he mm -hmm. went back. Um, and so that was all part of, of the assessment. So people come here, you know, with all different stories and the different cir circumstances. Most often they're fleeing persecution that's based on some characteristic in their identity, like um, sexual orientation, gender expression, or it could be race or political views, religious views, etc. And for the, the evaluations you're doing, are those folks in the United States and must they be? Or are some of these cases in other countries and you're doing evaluations over Zoom? I'm just curious, kind of the, the setup of how, how it works. Um, in in this whole process because i know i know some about immigration and and i i have a peripheral knowledge but certainly the ins and outs 
at least for me and probably for many clinicians, we just simply don't know much about the process and how long it takes. And so fitting in this piece of uh, evaluation is like, oh, and where does that fall into this consideration? Sure. No, absolutely. For um, all the cases that I work on, the person is here in the U.S. Okay. So they're, yeah, so they're always um, here in the U.S. And to apply for asylum, you have to do it um, either at the border or here in the U.S. Got you it. can't do okay. it from abroad. So, so you were just giving the example of an asylum seeker. And so, as you said, this is somebody that is, um, that basically needs to prove what may effectively be an invisible reason um, for mm-hmm. hardship. And that's when the lawyers are using a clinician like you. Do folks have to be clinicians to do immigration evaluations? They do. Yep. They need to be licensed mental health professionals. So, and I, I'm mindful you said there were three different cases, kind of cases you were often on. So I want to go back to those three before I lose sight of those goals. But so the first was asylum. Please tell me about the other two. Sure. So the the, sep- the second big category of case that I work on is something called an extreme hardship waiver. And they're also really meaningful cases, really different than asylum cases. Um, for these, I'm actually interviewing they can look different ways, but most typically I'm interviewing a U.S. citizen who's married to an undocumented immigrant. So it's a very different kind of a structure of a case. For these extreme hardship waivers, this person who's a U.S. citizen needs to show their level of hardship if they were separated from their spouse who's undocumented. Does that make sense so it far? It does make sense. Yeah. So it's interesting because you, I'll, I'll meet with folks from all different walks of life. Um, this is someone who's a U.S. citizen or legal resident married to an undocumented immigrant. For them to get this um, extreme hardship waiver, as it's called, they have to show the level of hardship they would experience, basically if their spouse were deported, if they were separated from their spouse. So I'll come in as a therapist and document their psychological functioning and also document the potential harm it would cause them if they had to be separated from their spouse. That's really interesting. Yeah, these cases are just fascinating to me. And it's really, you know, at the most basic level, we're helping families stay together. That's, that's what these are about, these extreme hardship cases. And the for extreme hardship, you'd mentioned spouse. Does that have to be related by marriage, or it, it, like what are the definitions of extreme hardship in the way that the, the country sees it? So those are there are kind of two different aspects to what you're asking about. One, um, it does not need to be a spouse. Um, that's I would say 99% of the cases that I get, that's what I see. Um, But there are also ways to petition for um, a parent or for an adult child. So occasionally I'll get a case that that looks a little different. Um, Now for these cases, an immigration officer is making the determination on the case and they're gonna look at a lot of different hardship factors. Um, more than we would have time to really get into, but they're going to look at a number of hardship factors. Um, I've developed these really detailed templates over the years. And so at this point, I use um, my template to kind of walk me through all the points that I know the immigration officer might be looking for. So an example here might be, um, let's say that that U.S. citizen has some kind of physical disability, 
maybe they rely on their um, undocumented spouse for day-to-day support, mm-hmm. um, running errands, getting to doctor's appointments, et cetera. So I have kind of my, my radar is out for anything like this. I'm always asking you these questions because I know that something like that is going to be taken really seriously by right. the immigration officer. Um, I mentioned this before, you know, I had these um, immigration lawyers that I was across the hall from. So I I basically, when I got started doing these 10 years ago, I just asked them a ton of questions for every case that we worked on. And then in collaborating with them, I created these templates based on the the structure of the cases, you know, what the main points are that the um, immigration officer is going to be looking at. As you're talking about it, I can hear the overlap um, with basically medical necessity and utilization review. So the same concepts that I'm looking at as a utilization review professional, like what are the considerations about why this client needs to be in this particular treatment? Will they have kosher foods available and they have clinicians that are also part of the queer community or whatever it is um, that could could, um, assist that client? So I can hear the the parallels as you're talking about it. Um, Exactly. So you said, so we're number one, asylum, number two, extreme hardship. What's that third kind of case that you often see? So the third common case I work on is something called a VAWA case. Now, VAWA stands for Violence Against Women Act. It's called Violence Against Women Act, but it actually applies to folks of any gender. So I work with folks who identify all kinds of ways you know, for these cases. And these are, again, very different and very moving. Um, these cases are just uh, really meaningful to work on. So VAWA is this really humane act that um, I'll just describe kind of who it is that I'm usually meeting with when I'm doing this kind of case. So I'm typically interviewing an immigrant who's been abused by their spouse, and that spouse was a U.S. citizen. So you'll run into these um, these situations where you're meeting with someone who they're in an inherently really vulnerable situation because they're undocumented and it gives so much power and control over their spouse. I mean, their spouse rather has that kind of power and control over them. Um, And so there's this ultimate sort of trump card of, you know, do what I say or I'll get you deported. And so this can play out with domestic violence in particularly damaging ways. So VAWA is this really humane act that allows them to self-petition for citizenship if they can show that they've been the victim of domestic violence. So in a way, our role in these cases is similar to asylum cases. So we're going to assess for signs of trauma, signs of domestic abuse, and this is going to provide evidence for their case. I have so many questions about how all of this unfolds in in your role. So to kind of backtrack, so you have an individual who is in the United States, and it sounds like really the first part of the process toward is it citizenship? Is like, is that the w- right word to use? So the first mm-hmm. step is legal representation. How does that happen um, in terms of who who are they assigned to? How much choice does somebody have of who they're going to work with? Like, kind of, if you'd set the stage of this, and I, I as you said, everybody's different, but like, this is kind of the average. T- amount of time that this takes. This is how much this costs, and goodness knows that when we're looking at marginalized communities, very often um, when we have people immigrating into the United States, they obviously, if they're coming to you, there may be a hardship element that's just inherent. Not to mention um, language barriers and financial hardship and things like that. Um, so. So when someone finds themselves working with an attorney, how does that even happen? Do they get assigned? Do they choose? Mm. 
No, that's a great question. And, you know, as a therapist, my role in this whole system is really specific. Now, typically I'm getting referrals that come to me from immigration attorneys. Okay. So typically the folks who find their way to me have an attorney. Um, every once in a while, someone might contact me who found me online or some other way. Um, if someone doesn't have a t- an attorney, I have a directory that I can send them um, mm. of low-fee legal services. Um, I know some therapists approach this differently, but for myself, I, I prefer to only work with clients who either have an attorney or at least have um, some kind of legal services that they're consulting. Because I want to make sure that, because I'm not a legal expert. I'm always upfront with about right. that with um, whoever it is that I'm talking to, you know, I haven't been to law school. This is all, you know, based on my experience, but I'm careful to not ever be advising somebody on their options, you know, their legal options. So the folks that I work with all have, um, attorneys or at least have some kind of legal services they're, they're not assigned to anyone. Um, there are definitely, there are organizations I work with, um, pro bono where okay. there are, um, those kinds of options for pro bono or low fee lawyers. Um, and then there are folks that I work with who have more means. And, and that's one of the things that really surprised me as I got started doing this work, um, was how there is such a wide range of folks who need these assessments, um, and you see such diversity in terms of economic background, educational level, um, cultural background, all of this. And you really, as a clinician, you can find this really meaningful balance between pro bono work with folks who are in dire need, who mm-hmm. could never afford um, a full fee assessment, and doing full fee work with folks who have some wealth even. Um, you know, I'll work with, um, I had a recent client from India with an MBA. You know, I'll work with folks um, from all different kinds of backgrounds. And I think especially because these extreme hardship waivers um, focus on a U.S. citizen, that just means that you're going to see folks from all different kinds of walks of life. In your role, is the attorney your client or is the individual your client? And how do you manage that almost dual relationship? That's such a great question. And in a way, neither. In a way, both. And then in a way, neither. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certainly consulting with the lawyer to get you know a clear picture of the case. I'm interviewing the, the client. But there's also this way that I'm coming in as an objective assessor. And that's something that I think is important to note in all this. You know, there's just an inherent aspect of advocacy. I mean, that's just that's what you know this is on, on one level. But kind of the flip side of that coin is that I'm coming in as an objective assessor to document what I see. Um, And in my trainings, I talk some about malingering, how to suss that out, how to work with that. Um, Frankly, it's not um, a question that I have had come up very often at all, uh, by and large. But I do think it's useful to name up front that, you know, someone can't just come into my office, pay a a fee, and then I write them a great report. No, they're paying for my time and expertise, and I'm going to document what I see um, in the room. And so there's a way that we don't work for anyone in the mix, even though we're consulting with them and interviewing them. One of the things that you already said really stands out to me because it's so um, counter sometimes to the way that clinicians document. Like you had mentioned about 
you know, working with an individual that because of where they're from to exist in the world as who they are is unsafe to them because of gender, sexuality, whatever it is. And it's interesting because then if you look at progress notes, for example, and that we may be inclined to use more ambiguous language in order to protect the patient's privacy and confidentiality. So to say, discussed clients' um, romantic interests, which would be a much more broad way of what actually may have happened, which is discuss that the person is attracted to individuals of Hmm. this gender or whatever it is. Um, It's so different in, in that way, how do you coming at this first as a clinician, as a therapist, how do you wrestle with this changing of hats that you're wearing, um, where almost instead mm-hmm. of trying to protect their privacy and confidentiality, on some level, you almost have to um, blow it out, have to exploit it in order to help prove what they need? That's such a great question. And I love how even just how you phrased that, that that's absolutely right on. You know, I think that it does require us to wear a hat a little differently um, and and to be thinking about the bigger purpose. You know, who is my audience that's going to be reading this report? Um, and that's always kind of in in my mind. You know, what's the bigger purpose of what we're doing here? In my experience, I think that it's often been more challenging for me than for the client. Because um, I think, for instance, you know, along the lines of what you're talking about, I'm so used to, you know, in agency jobs or in private practice, I'm always writing from a very strengths-based perspective. Mm -hmm. And that follows through to some extent, but the focus of these reports often is on human suffering, right? Like that's what we need to make so apparent. Um, and I know for me, that was, there was like a little road bump there. Um, when I was starting out, it felt different to be um, asking this kind of detail about someone's trauma. Um, like you were saying, asking these details about sexual identity, sexual experiences. Um, but I, and I think that a lot of those hangups were all about me for the client it's just apparent. They are going to be in life-threatening danger if they have to go back to their home country. They need you to be yeah. there, help amplify their voice to the judge to tell their story, to make it clear why they're part of this targeted social group um, about identity, You know, to make it clear what um, just how bad it is in terms of their symptoms, what they've been through. For you, so you are a, a white woman who was born and raised in the United States. For you right. in this role, you're working with people that are coming from all over the world. Um, how does language come into play? How much research do you feel like you need to do, or do you do none at all in terms of understanding, you know, as you mentioned, like Sierra Leone, the complexities of social structure there and um, and hardship and and discrimination? It's a great question. I. I guess what first comes to my mind is how um, I'm I'm so grateful to be able to do this work, especially as someone who has so much unearned privilege, especially as a white person, as someone who was born a U.S. citizen. You know, the citizenship was something that I completely took for granted before I started doing this work. I had had the good fortune to not have to think about it. I love, mm-hmm. I love how privilege operates that way so often. Um, so I'd never had to think about how awful our system is for so many people. Um, and then I love that at this point, I'm able to use my privilege in ways that can ideally contribute to more justice in the world um, in terms of social justice, racial justice. Um, 
in terms of you know each particular case, there's there's some amount of research that I do, um, depending on the case. But a lot of it, it's a lot of times in terms of the country conditions. You know that that's something that's going to be a part of every asylum case, and a lot of times you know other cases that we work on. Um, I want to you know have some basic knowledge, mm-hmm. but the focus so much is going to be on the psychological assessment, right. on the mental health assessment. So it's useful. And you certainly over time gain, um, you know, knowledge as you see clients who are from the same country that you've worked with, you know, eight other times in the past. Um, but, you know, the thing you're always coming back to is the trauma history, their psychological functioning. Um, that's sort of the anchor of the whole thing. So that's kind of what I'm always coming back to. When you talk about this, I can hear in, the language you use and the way you you speak, <clears throat> it's a phenomenon that I've come to call baby lawyering um, because I do the same thing with utilization review where I'm going toe-to-toe with insurance companies to advocate for clients. And it's that same idea of like, this is my job to advocate, but to learn as much as I can from these attorneys um, to be able to use that language and understand the framework and then take my clinical knowledge and create this package that can hopefully be maximally beneficial for the client. But it's the same idea, I think, in utilization review, where in standard therapy, we are very mindful and careful about discussion of trauma. But when I, you know, when I as utilization review professional have a a psychiatrist saying to me, tell me about the trauma history and, you know, what's going on with these flashbacks, that it's a different consideration when you're advocating for the necessity that, and you're right, like, there's so much overlap, which I didn't anticipate in this idea of like, kind of discussing the, the element of human suffering. Absolutely. No, I, I hadn't expected that parallel either, but you're completely right. And it's using our skill set in this particular way for a particular purpose. And that it's different. And and I know for me mm-hmm. as a clinician, I had done utilization review in medical before I did behavioral health. And when I was in behavioral health land, didn't even really think that it existed, didn't even think about it until you know mm-hmm. I got hit square between the eyes and agency work because there was an audit and you know a lack of medical necessity from our clinical team and blah, blah, blah. And then you go, whoa, this is part of the equation too of providing human services. And for you, it sounds like it's the same thing of recognizing this other element that is so often overlooked. Yes. And I, I love that aspect of it. I, I feel like like this work doing immigration evaluations, it brings together the best of all these worlds. I love the, you have this intimate clinical work. You know, you are right here with someone hearing their story, trying to convey their story the best you can so it can really reach whoever it is that's going to read this report. And then there's this macro level of, you know, you, I mean, I love being a therapist. I love, I still have a small caseload. Um, I love doing that work, but this is also a chance. Okay. Instead of, but I'll say, and, and at the same time, this is a chance where you you can make a life-changing difference. It's not just you know, providing empathic listening and witnessing, which is so important. Um, but it's not only that you're able to, these, these assessments are often the deal breaker for somebody's case. That's what I hear over and over from lawyers that it's often the only evidence that the lawyer has to work with for the case. So you get to help make a change in the person's life. So not only just being there for them and witnessing, but being able to take action in a way where um, our skill set can serve this bigger picture in such a powerful way. 
If you know the answer to this question, I'm curious, when did this become kind of a critical element to have the psychological evaluation factor into immigration cases? That's a good question. I'm not sure. It's such this kind of bizarre niche, little known Mm -hmm. area of work. Um, There are definitely agencies that do work on the asylum side. There's a group I trained with called Physicians for Human Rights. Um, I'm a big fan of work that they do. Um, they'll, They'll use a term called asylum medicine. And so, so there are sort of agencies that, um, that are involved in that kind of way with asylum work. But what I found, especially 10 years ago, was that like, that was the only training. It was, it was only around asylum cases. Mm. Um, that gave me a really great basis. But so many of the cases that, that I work on are these extreme hardship waivers, the VAWA cases. Um, and there was nothing. There was no training whatsoever. Um, it was only through, you know, just the good fortune of being across the hall from these lawyers that I could um, gain the the framework to to work on those cases. Um, and there also there didn't exist anything as far as mentorship or right. um, you know training on how to do the business side of it. You know how how does a therapist go from just normal private practice or an agency job to connecting with lawyers? You know what does that even look like? How right. do you meet lawyers? I was really intimidated by lawyers at first. I think their suits are really fancy. I didn't own a suit. It, I, it, I was not part of that world. Um, and over time, you know, I've gotten to know enough lawyers. It's sort of broken down that mystique. Um, and it's important to me in my training that I show therapists the business side as well, you know, so that it can just give them the practical tools they need to launch the business part of it. It's such a different animal than we're accustomed to in that here I am this many years into my clinical career, and really it wasn't until I encountered you in the last few years that this thing even came on my radar. Um, and And I think because of that, I mean, this is why we're having this conversation is to raise awareness of the ways that clinicians can operate um, and, and provide work to reduce human suffering, but it may not be in the same kind of context that we're accustomed to. Um, one of, one of my, and this is my law and ethics brain coming into play. When we're thinking of assessments, when we're thinking of any kind of letter writing, for example, there's this consideration of where is this document going to go? What are the ramifications for the client? What are the ramifications for me? What am I vouching for? How did you kind of initially wrestle with that? Because again, it was so different than what you were used to, um, to, to step into the space. Like I'm even thinking like, how did you talk to your uh, liability insurance about it? Because it's, it's this different thing. I've never noticed that as an option of the things that I do, you know, when I'm filling out my liability insurance renewal, like there's no checkbox that says immigration evaluation. So how do you know you're covered? Like, how does that happen when you're kind of in the, wild, wild west, so to speak. I love that you use that term. I think about it like that, the wild, wild west. Yes, I think about it like that. Um, That makes me a little crazy sometimes because there there are no official guidelines um, as far as immigration court or immigration, you know, the legal world. There there are no regulations as far as what constitutes um, a psychological evaluation. And so I, so therapists can provide anything and call it a psychological evaluation, mm. turn it in. And so there's a huge range in terms of quality um, 
as far as, you know, what therapists are providing. Um, and I'm not trying to put like a dire spin on it. I mean, there are just tons of therapists doing such amazing high quality work. Um, absolutely. But then there are some who kind of launch into it without training. Um, and they may give the client a diagnosis and a list of symptoms that might be better than nothing, but from the lawyers I've talked to, that doesn't hold a candle to what we can do when we understand the basic structure of the case. Because when you understand the, the basic structure, you can ask the questions that get at the heart of what you need to know, mm. what the judge is going to need to know. As far as um, malpractice insurance, you know, when I've called my malpractice insurance carrier, it, I didn't have to make any changes. This falls under the clinical, you know, clinical work uh, category. You're doing a mental health assessment. So even though it's a different kind of context, it falls right in line with that same thing. It's really interesting to to talk with you and just think of the, I guess the license being. Um, flexed in a different way. And so often I see providers saying, okay, you know, I've been doing therapy for this many years and I'm needing a change. And, and you know, here in lie, it's the importance of these conversations to know that these things exist. So I am definitely accustomed to thinking of a quote unquote psychological evaluation in a couple of different contexts. There mm -hmm. is my initial assessment as a clinician from the moment that someone contacts me um, and whether or not I think they're a good fit for my my practice and for for me as a clinician. So there's that kind. Then there's like the um, emergency response team psych eval. So there's that kind. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the neuropsychological evaluation where it's mm -hmm intensive testing and conversation for hours and hours and hours over the course of days and potentially weeks for this massive, you know, multi dozen page report. Where does your perspective land in that spectrum of what assessment means? <laughs> sure. I mean, so therapists do it different kinds of ways. You know, what I've developed over over the years has been um, a model where I meet with the client twice uh, for about an hour and a half each time. Um, I the write up that I do for the report is really detailed. It's usually it ends up being about twelve to fifteen pages, something like that. Um, I do have really detailed templates that I mentioned before, and that does a lot of the work for me. So I'm not coming at it, you know, having to create it all from scratch. Um, so that does a lot of the work. Um, I, it's hard to estimate the time it takes. It kind of depends on the case, but it might be maybe four to six hours uh, for the write-up, depending on, you know, the particulars of the case, something like that. Got it. Okay. So, so for you, it's a relatively short-term involvement mm -hmm. with these individuals. And um, back to language, do you find yourself often working with interpreters? Or Oh, great question. Yes. Yeah. I have amazing interpreters that I've worked with over the years. Um, a lot of my clients are English speaking, especially for these extreme hardship cases um, where it's a U.S. citizen. So most of those, I would say, um, you know, tend to be English speaking. But then, yeah, I have great interpreters that I've worked with over the years. And, and that's something I like to emphasize to folks, you know, that... Um, I guess, you know, one thing that just, it hurts my heart, um, how 
few therapists still know about this work. Um, and I think that there are kind of these preconceived notions that people have. Well, one, either they never hear about this at all because it's not widely talked about. Yeah. Um, or two, they hear vaguely about immigration evaluation. What is that? Um, and then they think that it doesn't apply to them. They think that, oh, I would need a doctorate. I would need to be bilingual. I would need some kind of specialized experience. And that's just not true. The work is so crazy accessible. It's so accessible. I feel like if, if someone listening only gets one thing out of this, that's what I want them to know. This work is so accessible. If it calls to you in any way, look into it because as a licensed clinician, you can do this work. Absolutely. Thank you for kind of breaking down those barriers of what we assume we're, we're not capable of doing. So your role then, you are and so in a, in a non pro bono case, you mm -hmm. are paid by the attorney or are you paid by the quote unquote client? And is that even the right word to use? Are they a client? Like what, how do you conceptualize like they're participants? Like what, what, what are they? <laughs> sure. So no, I would refer to them as a, as a client. Okay. Um, yeah. And the, typically it can, it can vary a little bit depending on the, the situation, but typically the payment's going to be made by the client. Um, they'll, they pay their lawyer separately. They pay me separately. It was sort of, it's better to keep all the payments separate. Okay. Um, and the fee varies a little bit, you know, depending on the therapist who's doing the evaluation. Um, but most of the time the fee is going to be right around between 800 and a thousand dollars, something like that. And that covers the three hours in the interviews as well as the hours for the write-up. Okay. How much work are you doing in the background in communication with attorneys about this person's situation or, you know, the contextual factors about socioeconomic status and religion and, and things like that? It depends on the case. It's always it's what's tough here is the lawyers are often very, very busy. Um, it's most ideal when you can chat with the lawyer a little bit beforehand, before you meet with okay. the, the client. Um, and especially if it's a lawyer that I've never worked with before, then I would really prefer to at least touch base with the lawyer a little bit over email or phone. Um, however, at this point, I have lawyers that I know really well over the years. A lot of these cases are very straightforward. Um, and so even if they're not available, um, you're, it, yeah, the cases uh, most times tend to fall in line, you know, the way that in, in very typical kinds of ways. And so it's, I most want to hear from the attorney if there are extra factors mm -hmm. that I should keep in mind. Um, but that, it, that's not all the time. Yeah. And so if I'm not able to get a lawyer on the phone, it's not the end of the world. Okay. Um, and as long as the case is pretty straightforward, then, then that's fine. Then, yeah. So the attorney provides a client with their client with your contact information, the client reaches out to you. And let's say you need an interpreter. Are you hiring that person or is a client or is the attorney? I'm just curious, like from a from a, a system standpoint, like how, how does it all happen that you're now online with them, but you're all you're having this conversation? 
Sure. So a therapist approach it differently. I typically will um, give the client a few different options in terms of an interpreter um, and then let them choose someone and okay. keep, I, I prefer to keep that payment between them and the interpreter Okay. Um, to just sort of simplify things across the board. I've found that ironically, now that everything is online with the pandemic, um, I find that working with an interpreter is easier, I think, than, than when it was in person. I feel yeah. like in person, there's sort of a lot of people in the room. You're not sure who to look at. Yeah. Um, whereas with Zoom, it's like, there we are. We're all right there. Um, and it's actually, I've, I found it um, very easy. Yeah. Interesting. So then you, I imagine your frame is very different because yes, you're a therapist, but you're not operating in a therapeutic role. How does that change disclosures, for example, that would otherwise necessitate a report, let's say? So if we're looking at California where you are, so looking at California law, what what disclosures, you know, if it's underage sexual contact, let's just say, does that change anything because you're not wearing a therapist hat or are you still a mandated reporter even though you're not wearing a therapist hat? Still a mandated reporter. So that's a good thing to let the client know beforehand. You know, so in that way, my role is going to be the same. Um, but then certainly the the focus is on this information gathering as opposed to um, the therapy itself. Treatment. I always um, provide a list of therapists or um, a therapist directory for the client um, to encourage them to, to meet with a therapist, you know, if, if that's something that's useful for them. Um, and so I always am trying to provide those resources. But yeah, it's like our hat is our hat is similar, but a little different. Right. And so when you have these evaluation sessions, and then you write your report, does that report go to the client or to the attorney or both? Both is how I do it. Yeah. So once I've done the report, I'll send a copy to the client and a copy to the lawyer. It's I find it really helpful to get input from both. Um, sometimes there might be a legal term that I've um, used incorrectly or, mm. um, you know, that's that kind of thing is really helpful to hear back from the lawyer on. And then the client can review it and make sure that um, there wasn't anything I missed or misunderstood. So that's that's really helpful to get that input before I do the final copy. I know that this is a really broad uh, question. When you're looking at like the timeline of these cases from the moment that someone seeks counsel mm. and representation to when there's they actually have the hearing, what does that look like? I mean, are we talking weeks, we're we talking months, we're we talking years, and then how does your role in that play into like you knowing the outcome? Like mm. how, how long does this take? It's yeah, it's often years. It, okay. it can depend, but it's often a process of of many years. You mentioned this about the hearing. One thing I I meant to say earlier um, of the cases that I work on. Interestingly, it's really just asylum cases that have a hearing. Okay, and this is imp something important that I, I like to mention to therapists because I know that there are some therapists who are drawn to the work, but they imagine that they're going to have to go to court. And that is not the case. I want to say that again. You do not have to go to court. You do not have to go to court. Um, I know plenty of therapists who do amazing work in this field, and they don't have the time or inclination to do court. And that's completely fine. Um, you know, most of the cases that I work on don't even have a court component. These extreme hardship cases, the VAWA cases, there's no hearing. The um, lawyer just gathers up this giant stack of papers mm -hmm. and files the petition administratively. 
So asylum cases are really the only ones that have a hearing component to it. That was going to be one of my questions about like, do you do you have to testify? Like how 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 legal does this get? If if you know what I mean, where it's like, how much are you in your lane as a clinician? But then does it start to veer over into a different kind of advocacy or a different kind of role? Sure. Yeah, you get to call the shots on that. You get to decide. You know, this this work is unique because you are never mandated to go to court. It's not the kind of thing where there's a subpoena or there's nothing like that. Um, you can choose to just work on extreme hardship waivers and VAWA cases and never have court even remotely connected to your work. Um, even with asylum cases, you can always let the client know up front that you're not available to do court. Um, I've you know, I've worked on maybe 100 cases, 100 plus cases over the years. I've been to court a handful of times, four or five times. Um, so it's not like it's something I do every day. Okay. I do it every couple of years or something like that. Um, so you you get to run this how you want. So if that's a concern someone has, I mean, a lot of people have a schedule where they're not going to be able to just block off a day to right. go to court. And that's completely fine. Um you can always let clients know up front if if their lawyer thinks that that could be an important thing, you know, to have a therapist to go to court for an asylum case, then the client can choose to work with a different therapist, you know, one who's able to do that. Okay. Um, but yeah, you get to decide and you're never mandated. You have total freedom over this. So for anyone, I know for me, I've had to overcome a lot of shyness to do court. Um, and so if someone is in a place where that's not remotely appealing, that's completely fine. Um, I do offer training at this point in how to do it. I definitely encourage therapists to do it. It's unbelievable. It is such an amazing experience to be there as someone is, to be able to, to speak truth in that kind of situation mm -hmm. and then to be there to find out that someone has been granted asylum. I had one of my early cases was with a trans gentleman from El Salvador. He was one who asked if I could come and um, go to court and I was available. I did that. So I was there when he found out that he was granted asylum. And that moment, I mean, that is where it's at. That's, that's what has me hooked to be able to do this work, pour your heart into it, do the best you can, and then find out that it was successful. That's, that's unbelievable. For you, what about when it's not? How do you clinically cope with those moments? Um, and and I you know can relate on the utilization review side when you're advocating for residential treatment or extension hospitalization or for a particular treatment, mm -hmm. and the insurance company says no, and you go through the appeals company or appeals process, and you still get the no, and just how discouraging and helpless you can feel. How I'd say that's kind of a um, potential side effect of the work that you're doing is to have just an unbelievable amount of weight on your shoulders. That's such a good question, Beth. I mean, a couple of things come to my mind. I think that, well, okay, a couple of things. On the upside, cases where the person has a lawyer and an immigration evaluation are way more likely to be successful. So the odds are severely in your favor as far as like the outcomes of these cases. And that was something that I heard so much, especially I've heard this over and over over the years, um, but it made such an impact, especially at the beginning when I was just starting out working with these lawyers, collaborating with them, asking them questions, developing my templates. And they were telling me, you know, that they were winning these cases and that they were actually winning cases that they would have lost before. 
of the cases that I've worked on, most I've never heard back about. Um, oftentimes, mm -hmm. no news is good news. You know, the person finds out the outcome a year or two after they've met with you. They're thrilled. They go about their life. They're not necessarily thinking to get back in touch with you. Of all the ones that I've heard back from, they've all been successful except for one. I will, one thing that I do want to add there, you know, I'm so glad at this point that I'm able to offer training and support to therapists because it was really, really tough starting out without a lot of training and yeah. guidance because it didn't exist back then. I was so scared I was going to ruin someone's life. You know, that was, that, that almost kept me from, from doing the work. It was like, oh my gosh, the stakes are so high. I'm so glad now to be able to offer, because I'm able to offer these really proven templates to therapists that have been looked at and um, by dozens and dozens of lawyers around the country, you know, I've, I've gotten feedback from so many people. So I'm able to offer them a strong starting place. It's not gospel. They're encouraged to change it, make it their own. But I, I love that, you know, my hope with that is that they can their shoulders can relax a little. Yeah. They can maybe breathe a little bit more. Like, okay, I have a strong, solid starting place. I am doing my best. And that, that's all that we can do. You referenced that some of this is kind of undefined. So there's not this very clear standard of care that you can point to. Where did the idea that master's level clinicians were qualified come from? And I'm going to try and answer the question myself. My guess is if an individual is qualified to be diagnosing and to be doing an assessment on someone's psychological condition, so therefore a master's or doctoral level clinician, then they would be qualified to be doing this kind of evaluation. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And are there any other kind of legal and ethical considerations that we haven't already talked about. I'm sure there are. <laughs> but are there any that come to mind immediately as we're having this conversation, you know, about like we talked about kind of that dual role of your communicating with the therapist or sorry, communicating with the client and with the attorney, um, concerned about privacy and confidentiality, things like that. Are there other things that that are on your radar that are maybe different for a private practice clinician that's not doing immigration evaluations? Well, a couple things come to mind. These these are common questions that I that I get asked. Um, one is, um, is it okay to do an evaluation for an existing client mm. that you have? Um, and the answer to that is no. Um, that that's you know you can always find someone who sees it differently, but that's the answer that I get back over and over from clinicians. It's best to keep those things separate. Um, it just can look like a conflict of interest if I'm writing an assessment for a, an existing client. It just it's not going to have the same weight and credibility. Um, mm. So it's always best to keep that separate. And then on the flip side, if you do an evaluation for a client who wants to do therapy, um, it's advised that we don't do therapy with a client until their case is over, which most often is going to be many, many months or even years down the line. Um, so it's always best that those are separate. Another question that I get that unfortunately there's not a really solid answer to be found on um, is what about pre-licensed therapists? Um, the, the, yeah, you're nodding because, yeah, this is, this is yeah, a question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that you get. Um, the, the best kind of uh, guideline that I hear is this work really needs to be done by independently licensed therapists. Um, and you can work with clients anywhere in the state where you're licensed. Um, now, I do hear some conflicting reports. I occasionally will hear of someone who 
has um, associates who work for them, um, you know, doing immigration evaluations. The supervisor will sign off on the reports. It is going swimmingly. You know, I do hear those those stories, but then I also hear the opposite, where I hear someone say, "Don't ever do that," because they know of an, you know, someone who was a pre licensed therapist whose report was denied by an immigration court. Um, and I think that asylum cases would be especially um, dicey to do anything like that with. So that's that's the best answer that yeah. that I had. It's interesting. I, again, I think this unexpected parallel, but in, in my world, um, doing utilization review, as far as I know, there is no firm law that says you have to be licensed to be calling mm. into an insurance company to convey information. However, it's the same situation. Whereas if you're asked what your licensure is, and you're considering this about advocacy and weight of opinion, there's no mm-hmm. question that that it's going to come out stronger to be a licensed professional than pre-licensed, and it's just unavoidable. And so I've, I've had exactly the same conversations with insurance company representatives and with attorneys and like, do they have to be licensed and what's best practice and why? And it, it's the same thing that it's like, there are all these different considerations. And, and I've had the same fear too. Like if this were my child that someone um, were advocating for, I would want that person's credentials to be as strong as possible to support the veracity and the integrity of the clinical opinion. Um, so, Absolutely. so it's, it's, I, I, I don't think either expected these parallels here, but they're, they're there. It's exactly. Yeah, exactly what you're saying. I will say that I, you know, if, if, if someone's listening who is in still is still in the process of getting their hours, so they're still pre-licensed therapists working under supervision. Um, I do know that there are a number of folks in that kind of situation who will do work behind the scenes. And there's a lot that can be done behind the scenes. So if somebody were to partner with an independently licensed therapist, they could sit in on the interviews, they could type up the notes, they could plug it into the template. It would just be the independently licensed therapist who would do the diagnosing, review the report. Mm-hmm sign off on it. Got it. So just to put that word in people's ears. If you're if you're hearing this and you're really passionate and curious, um, you can always look into it. You can get training. You can partner with a seasoned therapist and do work behind the scenes until you're um, up and running yourself. So when it comes to training, you know, you and I have talked about how this this is one of those fields that there isn't a whole lot of definition around how to do things. And so there are people like you that that um I don't know, I guess, rise to awareness and then become mentors and leaders in the field. Do you as a therapist then find yourself going to like legal conferences for immigration attorneys? I'm, I'm curious, like, ha- what does continuing education look like for you when you're one of the people that's that's writing the book, so to speak? It looks a, f- a number of, of different ways. I think that on the ground, just day to day, I still do these evaluations and I'm always asking lawyers questions. I'm just insatiable. I love knowing more and more of the nuances, um, getting their input about my role in it. What can I shift? What can I tweak or change or add or take out you know, to make the reports as powerful as possible? So that's uh, you know a part of the response in terms of just the nuts and bolts kind of day-to-day sort of mm-hmm. way. Um, and then I find myself learning and contributing in, in all different contexts. Um, I'm going to be uh, doing a talk on a panel for the New York Bar Association over the next couple of months um, and specifically talking to lawyers about um, how to interview trauma survivors. 
that's mm-hmm. a whole other podcast, a whole other thing that I, I've just, <sighs> immigration lawyers are my heroes. I mean, I watch them and they are just doing such impossible work, such incredibly important, difficult work, and they don't have training in trauma. Right. Um, so this is something that I've I've been doing here and there over the years. I I taught um, a couple of classes at Georgetown Law School um, a few years back about how to interview um, asylum seekers, for instance. So I find myself stepping into those roles sometimes with lawyers, and who knows, maybe in the future I'll do I'll end up doing more of that as well. Interesting. It's it's really interesting how much overlap there is. And I think that's par- probably part of what's intimidating for clinicians considering it is because it it is a it is a not necessarily a change of the hat, but it's got a different tilt <laughs> when when you're interacting with attorneys. And, and I can relate with that that it's a different consideration when you're looking at liability, and um, you, you just have to think differently. And it's a paradigm shift from what we are accustomed to. Um, so I can I can appreciate that. In a way, it's almost. I feel like to my advantage that I've had to overcome so much shyness in this kind of way, um, because I feel like I am now uniquely positioned to encourage therapists who might also be shy or hesitant um, to branch into this new kind of work. Um, Over the last couple of years, especially, my training center has really been emphasizing um, ongoing support for therapists. So we have a monthly Zoom consult meeting. Um, We have a Facebook group. And part of what I love the most is being able to encourage folks to make that transition from maybe never having talked to an immigration lawyer in their lives to um, networking, getting their first case, completing their first evaluation, just those steps. Um, I love getting to support therapists in in doing that and building their confidence. I, I... Yeah, it's such, um, especially because a lot of folks who do my training are people of color. A lot are immigrants themselves or who are part of the immigrant community or connected to the immigrant community. Um, And I feel really grateful to be able to be a part of their journey and to do everything in my power for them to feel ease and confidence that they can provide these stellar evaluations um, and that they can can stand up and stand tall in this niche work they're doing now. When you speak about it, I can hear this backbone of advocacy that I think harkens back to our call as mental health professionals in social justice. And that what we're talking about is really a a social justice issue, a societal and systemic issue. Um, And I think you, yes. you just gave a nod to that, but I, I I think it's important to acknowledge that this is all all part of supporting equality um, and and advocating for people that don't have necessarily the the privilege and, and the voice to be able to advocate for themselves and have the same um, impact for their lives. Um, so I, I, I'm glad that you ended up bringing up that point. So as we're wrapping up and running out of time here. Um, are there any other things that we haven't covered that you're that is you know right at the tip of your tongue of oh and don't forget about this um, that that I haven't asked about? You know, I wanted to share some a newer development with the training center. So 
It's a family-run business. My wife, Nina, is also a social worker and therapist like myself, but she also is a former immigration officer. She worked for um, the immigration consulate, and she's done these assessments herself over the years a number of times. We do trainings usually around three times a year. We do like a live training. People can get started anytime because they can view the recording, but she's able to teach from this really unique perspective as a former immigration officer. Um, she's able to speak to you know, what kind of tone should we be striking in our reports? How do we maintain objectivity? How do we um, keep a medical detached kind of tone so that we don't look like we're a cheerleader for the client? And then she's also African-American and she brings a really important perspective as a woman of color. I think that's an important point of like the consideration of different perspectives in this because it's so complicated and there are all these different ramifications of immigration assessments. And I, and I think that's why if we, if we as clinicians know about them, why we might shy away from them because it just seems too big, too complicated, too, um, yeah, just too big. Um, so Georgia, for our listeners that are now, um, peaked and want to learn more about this process and how to do it, how do they do that? What does that look like? Sure. So they can always get in touch with me and find out about the training program at my website. And that's therapistimmigrationtraining.com. Um, again, I offer several of these trainings live every year. And, you know, just what you just said, you know, it's like maybe someone's sort of curious, but it can be daunting. Mm -hmm. Just the words immigration law like, yeah. what's that? Yeah. Who wants to know about that? I don't want to know about that. That sounds too big. Awesome. I really appreciate it. You are a wealth of knowledge on this, and it's such an interesting and important niche. Um, thank you for taking the time out to share this with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Beth. This has been such a pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.